The German theologian and one of my heroes of the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the martyr, describes how temptation works in his little book called Temptation. Let me read just a short paragraph for you from that book. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we, all, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, expected of me, now here in my particular situation and circumstances, to appease this desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. This is exactly what happened to Eve as she had dialogue With the serpent, while Adam sat by and listened and did nothing. She minimized the freedom of God's word. We talked about that last week. She exaggerated the strictness of his word, and she softened the consequences of his word. And her interpretation, although it was pretty close to what God had said, pretty close to what he had commanded, we said this last week that uh, pretty close when it comes to the word of God is the difference between truth and deception. It cannot be pretty close. And her revisions caused her to believe the lies of Satan against all of her experience of God's goodness. Now, Adam was even more culpable. And we see that throughout the whole story of Scripture. Why? Because God's word was given to him before Eve was created. He was sitting right there, knowing she was being lied to, and he did nothing. He sat passively by. And then after she ate, and she didn't die right away, just kind of take the bite and fall over, this was no Snow White story, he, he realized, oh, she didn't die. I might as well eat too. And so he did. He wasn't fooled like she was. His rebellion was self-serving and a complete rejection of God and his word. And right then and there, they both died. One theologian put it this way, in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It is not the reverse of existence. To die does not mean to cease to be, but in biblical terms, it means cut off from the land of the living. It is a diminished existence, but nevertheless, an existence. There's a lot of people who are dying in our world today. A diminished existence. That's exactly how it feels. That's what they're embracing even at times. So what happens next in the story? Well, God confronts them. And in this confrontation, every single one of us is confronted because we have done the exact same thing. And we'll see here this morning, when we bring our sin to God, there's good news. When we bring our sin to God, there is Grace, and amen for that. (laughs) There is grace. Let me show you three ways to experience 
God's grace this morning. Yes, it's a little heavy hitting. Yes, you're going to feel the weight of your sin. But the point of this is to show us the grace of God and how you can experience that freedom in your life. Here's the first. Bring your sin to God. If you want to experience his grace, bring your sin to him. Look at verse 8. Let me reread some of these verses. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The first thing we notice is that God is seeking them. He is looking for them. He is calling them just like any other day. They heard God. And now that they have sinned for the first time, that they have directly disobeyed God, when they hear him coming, something in them is different. This time they felt something in their gut that didn't feel right. This time they experienced the weight of shame and guilt over their disobedience. Now, every time before, when God would come to spend time with them, when God would walk amongst them, when God would speak with them, when they had that completely unbroken fellowship with him, you can imagine as he comes, there's a thrill. There's excitement. There's anticipation. There's joy. I can't wait for this moment. Now, all of a sudden, that is completely changed. And now, with that same God coming towards them, instead of feeling that thrill, and excitement, there's dread and anxiety and fear. Notice what we read. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God didn't come down to walk in the garden. God didn't come back to walk in the garden. God was already in the garden. He was there. The, the earth was his palace. This is his garden temple. He wasn't living in another house down the street. He wasn't in another country. He wasn't on vacation. This was his home. He dwelled with his creatures, with his creation. He was at home with them. So now as he comes, they do what we do and so often have done when we know we've done wrong. They hide. They hid from God, or more precisely, they tried to hide from God. <laughs> They felt the weight of their sin, so what do they do first? I found this really interesting in the text as I was looking at it this week. What did they first? They first wanted to clothe themselves, verse 7. Isn't that interesting? Their innocence was lost, and their first response was to cover up. They wanted their rebellion covered up. They wanted their sin covered up. And just since that moment, all throughout human history, it's the exact same for all of us. We want our sin, shame, guilt covered up, covered over. Now they realize their clothes wouldn't do the work. It wasn't satisfactory, so maybe a more drastic covering would work. So they hid in these trees. They hid in shame. And maybe, perhaps, I'm sure... They wondered if the sound of the Lord walking their way was the sound of death on its way. But they had already died. Notice, God is not the one who changed in this story. He walked after them like he had done every other day. 
He went seeking after them like he had done every other day. His posture did not change. God's posture towards us has never changed. It's our posture towards him that changed. The craziest thing is all, in all this is that they thought, just like the little kid, that they could hide from him. And yet in Psalm 139, the psalmist tells us, this is impossible. This is delusional. This is just fool's play. In Psalm 139, verse 7, uh, the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Listen carefully, friends. Their lack of trust in God's truth leads them to the delusion that they can be where God is not. Yet God is omnipresent. It's part of who he is. It's part of his character. He does not change. We change like shifting shadows. He does not. So he's omnipresent. That means he's in all places at all times. There is no place to hide. Their lack of trust, listen, in God's character leads to the delusion that they could privatize their thoughts. That we can think whatever we want without God knowing about it. We can have our schemes and our thoughts and our ideas and he won't be aware. Yet God is omniscient. Omniscient means he knows all things and he knows every thought. Back to Psalm 139 and verse 1 it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Even as followers of Jesus Christ, we can become mastered by the we can hide from God delusion. And we cannot. Katie and I are parents who try to keep an eye on our kids' time with technology as best we can. And so in our house, there's some rules like, you know, you're not going to play video games and the iPad like all day. So we're going to restrict the amount of time that you play on these uh, phones or iPads or whatever for entertainment. Well, not that long ago, just a few months ago, one of our kids wasn't satisfied with how much time they got on the iPad. They desired more. So they hid the iPad next to their bed at night, buried under a stack of books surrounded by magazines. And so I did what I do every night uh, for the most part, and that is go into their rooms. Uh, I'll typically pray with them or pray a blessing over them or kiss them goodnight, give them a hug. And so when I walked into the room that night, they, they thought they had done a good job hiding the iPad. They were looking forward to playing that iPad as soon as I walked out of the room. The problem was that the iPad didn't have any battery power left, and so they had plugged it in to the wall... And although the iPad was hid beautifully, I might say, the cord was coming right out from in between the books and going into the wall right next to the nightlight that I turn on. <laughs> Somehow they didn't think of that detail. They get smarter as they get older. And so when I went to flip on the nightlight, I see the cord. I run the cord with my hand back towards the iPad. And in that moment, what do you think they were feeling? It's the same thing that we feel. See, now most nights when I walk into their bedroom, they're just excited. Hey, dad's coming. It's our time to pray. It's time for some hugs. It's time to say goodnight. 
They've got a smile on their face. There's a thrill and an excitement. But this night, it was dread, anxiety, and fear. And this is often exactly how we feel with God. Because we've done the exact same thing. We've tried to hide from him. And sometimes in our hiding we say, well, I'm just not going to talk then to him. (laughs) I know what I've done. I don't feel good about it. So I'm just not going to pray. I'm just going to keep going down that direction because I, I might as well. I'm already distanced from him anyways. So we try to hide. We try to run. We try to cover up. Our sin still brings guilt and shame, and we still try to hide it from God rather than confess it to him. Every single one of us knows what this feels like, and there is not one single exception to that rule in this room. (laughs) So all of us have done it. We've all done it. We've all hid. We've all ran. We've all tried to cover it up. So let's just admit it collectively to one another. Just turn to a neighbor. Turn to five neighbors and just say, you've done it. You've done it. You've done it. You've done it. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. So they tried to hide their sin. And we've all tried to do this. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the good news. You don't have to. That's the good news. You don't have to. Instead, rather than hide from God, bring your sin to God, and secondly, then take responsibility for your sin. If you want to eventually experience his grace, don't hide from your sin. Bring it to God and take responsibility for it. Let's see what happens next in verse 11. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So God responds. But notice his response, we should, we should, we should immediately recognize it's, it's a twist in the story. Because this is not how we would expect him to respond. He said, if you do this, you're dead. You are surely dead. So they did it, and when he comes to meet them, what do we expect then him to do in the story? Him to do with them. They're dead. They're destroyed. Start over. They didn't work out. But instead of sending a lightning bolt directed straight at both of their heads, instead of responding with a shout of condemnation, he asks two questions. That's his response. He asks two questions. What do you do when people sin against you? What's your response? God asked questions. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, we've already established that God already knows the answer. So is God just having a bit of fun with them? Is he just toying around with them, eagerly awaiting the moment where he could say, you know what? They gave in. I knew they would. I can't wait to kick them out. Was that his posture? No, he is giving them an opportunity to step from deception and death back into truth and life. There's still consequences, we know that in the coming weeks, but he gives them the opportunity to step back into truth, to take responsibility. Rather than fess up to what happened and their sin, they, like we do, made excuses and shifted the blame. Let the games begin. 
Let the games begin. So Adam's first. What does he say? Does he take responsibility? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It was her. She's the one to blame. I didn't do it. Because of his own pride, Adam is not willing to take responsibility for his actions, and so he throws his wife under the bus. The wife he once adored. The wife he once loved. The wife he married. The wife he was given to protect and care for. Now he's seeking her destruction. This is what sin does. And I know it hits heavy because I know it's where many of you are. But it's where we all are. These are the words of a man who is spiritually dead. Do you remember Adam's ecstasy when he first laid eyes on Eve? Then the man said, this is at last, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She was at once his sister, his one flesh wife, his helper, his lover, his entire human universe. And in a flash, in a moment, he turns on her. She gave me this fruit. It's her fault. She's the one to blame. But notice... He goes a step further. He's not just blaming Eve. He's blaming God. This woman whom you gave to be with me. God, this is your fault. Delusional. It's delusional. The deception of our own depravity to turn on the very one who made us, to turn on the one who says he loves us completely and has loved us completely, to turn on the one who built us for his glory, and we marvel at his glory. So God, at this point, doesn't ask Adam any more questions. Adam, heart, his heart has been revealed. And since Adam didn't own up to it, he looks to Eve to take responsibility, Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. So what does she do? Does she take responsibility? No, she blames the serpent. Now we established last week the serpent is the devil. It is Satan. And so she says, he's the father of lies. He spoke lies to me. I believed him. But in that moment of believing him, she chose not to trust God, and so she is also blame-shifting. It's not my fault. Now, she might not have directly blamed Adam, like Adam directly blamed her. She didn't suggest it was God's fault, as Adam did, but she also passes the buck of responsibility. The American actor, you'll remember him, his name is Will Rogers. He said this, and I thought it was fitting for this message. There are two uh, eras in American history. The passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. Not taking responsibility is an American art form. Passing the buck is an American art form, but it's not simply an American phenomenon. This goes all the way back to primeval history. Humanity's been mastering this one for a long, long time. We are very gifted at blame shifting. We have all earned our PhDs in this category. 
I was thinking about this this last week and thinking about times when I've done that and some of the times that are the obvious ones in my life that happen a lot is usually when I'm in a car. (laughs) And so I was looking up uh, blame shifting from people who were in car accidents that were their fault, but they were blaming or shifting the blame to someone else, to both the police and their insurance company. And here's some very real statements that were written in police reports and insurance company reports. I just, I just picked out five. Here's what one person said. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> it wasn't me. My mother-in-law was staring at me. The other car collided with mine without giving me a warning of its intention. (laughs) Blame the car following the rules. To avoid hitting the bumper of the car in front, I struck a pedestrian. (laughs) Blame the parked car. Going to work at 7 a.m. this morning, I drove out of my driveway straight into a bus. The bus was five minutes early. (laughs) Blame the promptness of the bus driver. I didn't think the speed limit applied after midnight. Blame the lawmakers, the politicians. Sure, that's a good place to go. We're we're very good at that. I've heard it said this way, to err is human, to blame it on others and upon God is more human. It's so tempting to shift blame or blame God because he allowed the circumstances or the situation So, oftentimes we rationalize in our delusional minds, this is too much for me, it's God's fault I'm in this because he was the one who placed me in this circumstance. He was the one who gave me this job. He was the one who put me in this marriage. He is the one who gave me this wife. He is the one who gave me this husband. He is the one who put me in this situation. He is the one who made me with this affinity towards depression. He gave these things to me. He gave me more than I can handle, and he knew I'd fail. And if we don't blame the circumstance, we blame our disposition, which also he made. He put these passions in me. He put these appetites in me. This is the way I'm wired. He knows it. This is the way I'm made. He knows it. It's his fault, ultimately. It's nothing new. James chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Blaming God is another delusional strategy. We must take responsibility for our sin. It's our sin. It's my sin. It's not God's fault. Can't blame the devil. It's my sin. I have to own it. I have to take responsibility for it. That's what God was after with Adam and Eve. That's what he's after with you. Are you willing to take responsibility for your sin? Are you blaming God? Are you blaming others? Finally, repent of that blame game and experience his grace. 
If you want his grace, here's how we get it. Experience the grace of God through repentance. Look at verse 8, and we'll see how this comes in. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God's response is so surprising from our, from our perspective. This is such a gentle approach to what had happened it doesn't seem like the right, quite frankly, it doesn't seem like the right response when he said, you will surely die if you eat. He, he comes and says, where are you? Why so soft? God's response shows us his grace. This is grace. This is the first time we see grace. Where are you? Where are you? They didn't deserve any kindness, any grace. They deserved destruction, but God sought them, seek them out, and he found them. Here is the gospel for the first time when he says, where are you? God is seeking after sinners. He's seeking after those who have failed him. He's seeking after those who have rebelled against him, not to torment them. That is not why he's seeking after them. He's seeking after them to save them. Now, you might be thinking, why? Why create them at all if he knew all the destruction that would come? In God's grand plan, even through sin, he is glorified and found to be good. Follow this carefully, friends, and now we begin to see how. How can God be glorified in sin? How can he be glorified in our failure? Well, we live with the effects of our sin all the time, every day. And we die because of our sin. There are consequences to it. But if you are in Christ through faith, we also know God's grace because of our sin. We know God's love because of our sin. We know God's goodness because of our sin. We know God's mercy and compassion because of our sin. He didn't create the sin, but he uses even our sin to bring him glory. Now, you might not like his method. You might say, aren't there other ways? Why, why this way? Why, why did there have to be such brokenness then? Why such torture? Why do I have to go through such difficulty? Why such suffering? And even if you have a hard time with God's method, you need to know something very significant, that he was a practitioner of his own methodology. He said, yes, suffering is in the world, and somehow I will gain glory through it. And if you want to know how I know that to be true, I'm not just saying words to you. I did it. And that's where Jesus comes into the story. One of the greatest verses in the Bible is Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where are you? Seeking after sinners, while Adam is the one that sinned, bringing upon himself guilt and shame and blaming others and God, Jesus is the one that takes our blame, even though he never sinned. God seeks after sinners and takes their blame upon himself in the Son. So we are blame shifters, and God is the blame taker. He has taken your blame, he has taken your shame, he has taken your guilt, he has taken your rebellion, he has taken your rejection of who he is and his goodness. And he says, although you might even blame me, I will still come and die for you. I will take it 
I will not shift it. I will not pass the buck. The buck stopped with Christ, and it was done, and it was finished. What are you doing with your sin? A lot of people like to say, we don't have it. That's No, that's just Christianity. That's just our world passes all the blame. It was my childhood. It was this reason. It was that reason. It was everything else, but it's not me. It wasn't me. Genesis 1 and 2, paradise. Genesis 3, paradise lost. You know what the rest of the Bible tells the story of? You know why Jesus came? Do you know what the end result of the gospel is? Paradise regained. And in that, God receives glory. And we enjoy his glory. Have you been placing the blame of your sin on someone else or something? Stop. Give it to Jesus. I pray so hard today that you don't just leave this message. Go home and think about all the people or even God that has you in the place you are right now. I hope that you'll stop that you'll bring it to God, that you'll take responsibility, you'll repent, and when you do, you will find his grace. It's yours, and it's free. If you're not in Christ, I pray today would be your day. If you are in Christ, enjoy his grace again anew. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this day. And Father, I want to begin by praying for those who are here this morning and they've maybe blame-shifted their entire lives. And maybe they thought they had received your grace and yet the fruit of their lives demonstrates and their conscience tells them that they are still under disobedience. And when they think of you, they don't get that thrill, that excitement. Instead, they are filled with dread Anxiety, perhaps fear of what you will do and what will happen next. And yet, Father, we see right here in Genesis 3 that your posture towards all of us sinners and towards even them this morning is, where are you? You're seeking after sinners. And so, Father, if there be any here who have not submitted their lives to Jesus Christ, have not been forgiven of their sin. Father, I pray that in their mind and their heart, they would pray to you even now, Lord, forgive me. I take responsibility. I've, I bring you all of my sin, all of it. It is my own. Yes, there's other factors involved, but I know that I am responsible. So I give it to you, and I trust that you took care of all of it on the cross, that the blood of Jesus covered over my sin. And Father, as we pray this, with eyes of faith, you save us. And so communion starts making sense. Church just starts making sense that, that we can't cover up our shame. We can't cover up our guilt. We can't hide from you, an omnipresent God. We can't hide our thoughts from you, an omniscient God. You know all things. And yet you've made a way You've had victory over death even through your son, the perfect sacrifice, the blame taker. 
And so, Father, I pray that all of us, even if we are in Christ, would continue each day as we need to bring you our sin, to remember the cross, to take responsibility, to experience your grace, to demonstrate that grace towards others, to proclaim that grace towards others, and to live a life of victory as we understand that death has no hold of us, sin has no hold of us any longer. It is all covered. It's all gone. It's all laid at the foot of the cross. And in you we have victory. In Jesus' name, amen.